When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Fader Interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, Editorial Director of The Fader. Fred Gibson, the London producer better known as Fred Again, is a master at cultivating joy. At the onset of the pandemic, he began accumulating found samples and voice notes from across the internet, assembling them into what eventually became his debut album, Actual Life. In the 18 months since its release, he's amassed an army of devoted listeners, sold out rooms across the globe, unleashed a number of heavy-hitting collaborations in an ongoing playlist called USB, and made two sequel albums, the second of which, Actual Life 3, arrives this week. The record serves as a culmination of the love and grief that have shaped Fred's life over the past year. Though neither are tethered to any sort of linearity, they inevitably collide, manifesting in intermittent surges of club gospel catharsis. After having teased much of Actual Life 3 at his viral boiler room set, it's become easily his most hotly anticipated work to date. It also marks the end of the Actual Life project as it stands now. Speaking with the fader Salvatore Mackey days before the release, Fred explained why he's ready to pivot away from documenting life via dance music what he's learned from working with Brian Eno and Fortet, and where he's headed next. How's this album release week kind of been treating you? Have you had some time for yourself? It's been cool. No, it's it's like a... It's, it's always funny because you kind of go into like a sort of replaying mode of the last nine months, as it were, in a way that can actually be quite good and reflective, I think. Are you settled back in London after these uh, US shows? Yeah, well, I mean, this is my first proper day back at the flat. Well, because I went and did some writing in upstate New York with Aaron Dessner. Yeah, which was great fun. Have you spent time upstate before? No, it's fucking beautiful. I loved it. Yeah, it was idyllic. It's kind of like England countryside in a way, but more expansive and kind of epic in its like terrain. But like, it felt kind of like home. Um, but yeah, so I only got back yesterday. Incredible. Well, again, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, sort of get into this album with me. You know, it's interesting because when I typically, you know, do these sort of album reviews, it's like we're talking about the record as this sort of individual story. But I think what's interesting about the actual life project, and I think it's something that your live shows punctuate quite well, is that the stories on these records just keep expanding. And this record just feels like the natural evolution of, of what you've been doing in the past few years. Talk me through, I guess, coming off of Actual Life 2. We caught up about that record briefly back in, I believe, last December. When did like the sort of seed start to, uh, I guess, develop for this project? Yeah, I think I sort of started. It was a new year sort of energy. I like those times where there's like real um cross-cultural synchronicity like things like new year 
obviously you have say different new years and different cultures but fundamentally on january the first there is a feeling that's quite widespread that everyone has that's quite like reflective or just come off the back of some reflection or and um those moments where there's like you feel like a real synchronicity with other people i find very powerful i yeah i don't don't actually know if i started on purposely or accidentally or if it's just what happened i don't actually remember but yeah that's what happened basically and it was just kind of the beginning of wanting to make a record i mean I, i didn't know when i was starting it that it would be the last one of this sort of trilogy but it became clear sort of halfway through that like it was time to draw a line in the sand. Wait, I did not know this. This is the final one. This is a this is a trilogy now. It's I don't I'm not I'm not saying like forever, but I just know that like this is definitely I need to draw a line in the sand after this one because it's like they're all to me kind of about the same thing and it's very like intense to write about and I needed to kind of allow myself to breathe from it for a second so that I could sort of move forward, I think. I don't want it it's not gonna sound like some dramatic end. It's just that's why I like saying drawing a line in the sand because it's just like wanting to sort of clarify that was then and move into now. <laughs> I think you're really good at creating music that feels very high stakes. Like the, the stakes are very palpable in your songwriting and, and, and in your music. There was definitely like, I think a moment on this record where I was like, this would be difficult to continue because I think something that we spoke about last time is grief's impact on this project. And talking about growing around grief was was a big thing in uh, actual life two and that definitely is carried over into actual life three tell me about how like i guess that process has sort of shaped what this album became yeah i think it's like i think trying to make like peace with it being like a non-linear thing like we were saying, as you said, for about the second one, but like with that, with it being a non-linear experience, you know, it might be that I make an album in seven years' time that feels like it's most in the grips of this thing in a weird way. I hope, and I think what I'm trying to do with this record is portray some type of acceptance of that thing and that it doesn't have like a beginning and a middle and an end and it's just something that becomes you and that has peaks and troughs and and it has it just becomes life and so that's why i needed to sort of draw a line in the sand because i was like needing to it's by obviously it's not the end of the actual life records or it's not the end of the story or it's not even the end of the feeling but i just needed to put something to divide like okay i'm gonna pause for a second and just see what this feels like in after a few months of just being stiller I feel like there's also this sense of unburdening in a way with this project. The first record stemmed from this period of lockdown, which kind of carried over into the second record. But this past year, you've been everywhere. You know, you haven't been making music from this one location. It's kind of pulled you in many different directions. Do you feel like location has shaped what it turned out to be? Yes, I'm sure. I think in a lot of ways, weirdly, like what the this like record sounds like and is in a way, in a way, I'm like the worst person to comment on that because I'm like the most inside it, if you know what I mean. But like for sure, you can hear that it's like part of a thing which is it's existing in a world that is more open and crowded, literally. Like you could hear that. Like I very purposely like have that in some of the records so you can feel like the claustrophobia of it. No, I definitely think it's impacted it. It would be crazy for it not to, I guess. The collaborative element has obviously been so synonymous with this project. I mean, you've shared bits of the creation through 
social media. And I, I reckon that working with close friends such as Kieran Ebden have, you know, really kind of helped galvanize certain aspects of this album's creation. And I'm, I'm really kind of curious about that and your friendship. Tell me the story behind that. Yeah, no, I mean, I hear, I, I think, I think actually, to be honest, all of the records have been made with my best friends. I made a lot of the first record with Joy Anonymous, who I live with and is one of my best friends, and my little brother, who's my little brother, as well as the Parisi brothers, who we worked on a lot of the second record with as well, who are also two of my best friends. And then, yeah, as you say, Kieran, and yeah, even like people like Jamie and other people in this vein, like it's, that's always been what's, fueled the music to me is like other human beings is infinitely more inspiring than anything else in the world so like that's that's actually been a part of it always and it always will be like I I'm always I always feel really like grateful that I work in a in an art form that's like so able to do collaboration I'm like imagine if you're like a a poet or like a painter like I wouldn't I just couldn't do that like in those things where they don't really like collaborate as much for one reason or another like I would just find that impossible like it's the absolute fuel for me is just like <clears throat> the humans and the lovely rooms like I get to sit in with these people I I think it was a video you posted of you and Kieran in a park in I think it was New York City it looked a lot like McCarran Park in Williamsburg was that it or was it Central Park that's right yeah 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 it was McCarran yeah and that's where you finished Delilah that's right I've quite often thought to myself in McCarran Park pull me out of this so <laughs> I, I like that 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 sort of carried over <laughs> how did that song finally fit together because that definitely seems like kind of one of the aha moments of this project i don't know i spent a lot of time making different things around delilah's vocal there's loads and loads of versions that i built around those basically just those two lines just the you know how to calm me down and pull me out of this that was just like really immediately felt like an important lyric for me to hear on the record so I put it in lots and lots of different like emotional frameworks for it to to see what those lyrics sound like in those different frames and yeah for one reason or other, I think the clarity of this one came from wanting to create this juxtaposition of like the feeling of like having a panic attack in a club and it going from being like the most perfect place for human interaction and joy and connection to being like the most nightmare place in the world for if your mind starts going down a certain route um then it's the last place you want to be and trying to like have this thing that like goes off into these like you know how to calm me down you know how to calm me down sort of like going into your own mind a bit and then gets pulled out into this more the person you know like reaching out for someone to pull you out of it um so like that was a story that was yeah really important for me to tell but fuck man i tried yeah we made so many versions of that tune with like different everything everything changed um but yes the big clarity for the very end was hit playing it in a rave in new york and we understood a lot better about what needed to happen to it so that's why we went to the park the next day and finished it pull me out of this I'm curious, you know, having spent so many of your nights 
booked in these really, you know, yeah, sweaty, tiny rooms or, or huge rooms. You've, you've played such a variety of spaces over the past year. Has that impacted your own personal, like when you're trying to go out and you're trying to experience live music, have you been able to do that in the same way this year when you're spending so much time doing this as, you know, obviously your career, your 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 main passion? I think yes, to be honest. I still get go to like clubs on my own a lot and we'll just kind of wallflower on the corner and just take it all in. And the main thing in my life is just sitting on the river in London and sometimes making music and watching people go by that's the that's probably the biggest inspiration to me in the world it's just this like roll strolling sort of yeah collage of humanity so yes i think that obviously there's lots of things that have changed and being able to go play like shows in different parts of the world but that also really like informs the whole feeling of like when i first put out the first record i could, i was like totally changed forever by people's messages to me about what it had meant to them and the stories of their life and how they'd allowed it sort of into their space and the shows and what life has been this last year is like a hyper realized version of that like where it's all real life and like you know you can see the person in the show and you can meet them afterwards and you can and every song i make is like endlessly inspired by that dialogue um yeah like i'm i'm forever indebted to these people who make the music what it is. You know, having accumulated so many songs over the past two years, over the, you know, three albums, how has the set list shaped into what it is today, or at least what I saw in New York? Because there's so many, like, it, you have to make so many, like, cuts just because, I don't know, there's only so much time, but you have so much music. So what rises to the top for you? Or, like, what have you noticed is, like, the through line? The most important thing to me is trying to tell the story. Well, I don't know, tell, tell a story in the show in a way that feels as pure as possible. And so then it becomes like what songs can support the narrative of that and the journey of that in the best way. And yeah, we've experimented with a lot. In the summer of shows, we played a lot of different set lists as well and tried a lot of different things and tried starting and finishing with different ones. And yes, I, I don't know what the through line is. I think I'm still working it out and I'm looking forward to like, I just have this real feeling now of like, because if, if we've been put in this incredibly like fortunate position of lots of people wanting to come to the shows and stuff, now I'm just like, all right, we need to just make it. We need to make it fucking good. <laughs> it's like I'm just like we. This is our responsibility to like. Really, I really am just motivated to try and make it as pure and as good as possible. And hopefully, I like you're saying like there are like we put out a lot of tunes and I'm going to put out a lot more. And so I think and hope it will become like that people will arrive not sort of with too much of an expectation of this song or that song, but more just like a feeling in the room that we can sort of all live in together for an hour and a half or whatever. That's the main thing to me. I'm curious which of these songs, if any, have changed the most for you since playing them live and seeing how the, the audience responds to it. For, for me, it would be... Um, Angie, the I've Been Lost song that we mash up with a tune from this next record, the way we play it live. That's gone from being a song we didn't play in the set to being like the most important moment, I think. Being able to sing that with everyone is like, yeah, that means a lot. I think maybe right now it's that one. Maybe it will change. Don't have nothing left. I've been lost, I've been 
how has your career felt post Boiler Room? I, I think your live career in particular, given that it's had this staggering response and kind of galvanized, I think, more people to need to see this this experience live. Yes, I don't totally know because we played shows before and we played shows after and I haven't really noticed a difference in res- that respect. I've noticed differences in like how we're like evolving the set list and stuff and I guess some new tunes that I'd written that we added in. But I, I mean, there's like sort of surreal moments where I'm sort of forced to... <laughs> acknowledge like well something's changed like when we put on the Brixton shows in London at the end of the year and then Kieran actually being the sweetie that he is called me and he was like Fred and I was like hi he was like there were 71,000 people in the queue for your tickets this morning what is that like and then so those like things where it's like okay well that's something's changed (laughs) like you can't I can't ignore that like that wasn't the case once but um in terms of like the feeling in the room I don't think that has changed which I'm very grateful to it's just interesting because I like mentioning Fred again I feel like around at least my circle of friends it's like boiler room have you seen the boiler room have you seen the boiler room and and going back and like rewatching that it's just like this I'm just curious how you sort of prepare for a feat of endurance such as that one I mean just like watching like your concentration and the intensity of that moment. Were you able to process that as it was happening? I mean, it's such like a kind of dream come true. Yeah, well, it was very, very chaotic in the room. I was like, not well. <laughs> I sort of was off the back of like five shows in a row and then just gone straight into that. And I just hadn't really like drunk water. I just kind of forgot to do the obvious life things. And then it was like unbelievably hot. And so the main thing was just, like, by the end, I was just like genuinely close to passing out. And it was only like, a bit over an hour or something like it's not like do you know what I mean it's not like a five-hour proper DJ marathon set or whatever but yeah as you say like it was very very intense and I think there was like a feeling that we kind of built up in the room that like we all sort of came up together <laughs> yes it was I don't I don't really know I think I just was like that, that was what was happening and so that's what I was doing and then I, ca- I came out at the end and I was like sat on the floor just like oh my god I could actually this is the closest I've been to being this like an unconsensually unconscious man. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was it was full on. I'm curious about the division between this album and and what this album became and this USB era of tracks that is sort of ongoing and where that I guess dividing line revealed itself. I think it was kind of like halfway through the process of making this album I was like just realized that I like was approaching an end of sorts I realized that I kind of needed to do that otherwise I think I was just going into this overly like vacuum of just myself and my own thoughts in my own head and it wasn't the best thing to do or like the healthiest thing to do so I I, like realized that it was it would be a good thing to finish this and to sort of pause for a second um the USB side of things is like, that's just like a style, um, a sort of headspace of song making, I guess, that I'll always dip into sometimes. It isn't as enrapturing and like all encompassing as like an actual life record. It's more like a tune that I can make with friends and like do collaborations with and play them out. And it's like a different thing I'm trying to make in those 
piece of music that that's kind of an ongoing thing that i'll always i'll always do and then i'm sure at one point i'll probably decide that it, i want to do another actual life record i mean right now i'm doing an album with finishing an album with brian eno which is the main thing i'm trying to finish at the moment and that's yeah also like a kind of different part of the headspace and like working and stuff how has that process been what have you learned from him obviously it's it's a ways away and and we're talking about this album right now but i'm curious yeah i mean i think he's the i'm very indebted to brian for a lot of stuff with my music and like it was when i was first doing right at the kind of about to start going back to making my own music again a few years ago at the beginning of making the starting like fred again stuff i guess that he emailed me and was like all right enough is enough go back to doing your stuff now the stuff we did that you were doing when we first met and so yeah i'm great i'm i owe him a lot but the um with this record i think it was like he's always helped i've always brought him the records as i was working on them and the different songs and the different albums as we were going through and there was always a strand that we worked on together that became something slightly different i don't quite understand it yet because i'm slightly too inside it still but i think it's um like a more meditative space for the samples to exist in that's much more slower and breathable but yes the main the main brian like usp i think is that he is like a kid essentially he plays every day like that's what he he does in the studio or when he's painting or making his art or whatever like he just has retained a spirit of play that is like so admirable in a, in a creative i think there's a reason why i love making music on like tubes and trains and stuff and the reason why i think it still works on tour is because if you start if you're on a train i think your brain goes into this type of state of mind that is very conducive to a lot of good creative processes you surrender a degree of control just by the whole nature of the whole thing you just kind of get onto some massive thing and a little piece of paper sorts the whole thing like it's like it's kind of wild and then this massive thing just drives for hundreds of miles or whatever and you have no real control but then also but just by the nature of being sat in your chair you're kind of achieving one of the things you need to do that day because you're getting to wherever you need to go and so i think that puts you into a very liberated state of mind because you're much more prone to being like all right i'm sat here i'm already kind of getting one thing done just by the nature of sitting still so i might as well mess around a bit or like just play with this for a second like it doesn't feel so much like sit down here's the studio make your song now it feels more just like oh maybe like this could be a fun thing to do for the next 40 minutes with a cup of tea on the train like i think tubes trains planes are particularly powerful for that reason they're like the most extreme version of that you're cut off from everyone yeah they're 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 really i think cheat codes to creativity i want to talk about clara the night is dark first time i heard that sample it sort of it was it was earth shattering and and that song it just it feels too weighty to not discuss i'm curious how that one came together yeah i think uh, a friend of mine played me the oh i stumbled across it on some like youtube thing i can't totally remember i think maybe maybe it was a random 
YouTube stumble. But yes, as soon as I heard her say the words, courage my soul and let us journey on, it won't, you know, although the night is dark, it won't be very long. It was like, yeah, very powerful to me. And the like unbelievable, like declaration style of her, like she's so like, the way she sings is just like, so it's such an announcement. And then that like, because the other voice on that song is, the spoken like shout things is my friend Senny when we were on a night out and she kept on shouting out. I don't even know why. There was lots of people who were just saying things. It's kind of chaos, but then you can just hear her being like, if you don't know, then don't worry. Which in the context of the Clara lyrics, I was just like, and I love the way the voices are so different and so like, like everything about the way they're like recorded and the way the voices sound and all the background noise. And then like, you can so hear like, the night out from where Senny comes from, which I really love. Yeah, it was an important song to come at that moment in the record to me that, that there needed to be something that showed that I hadn't given up. I've always been curious, but especially on this record, I seem to gather that a lot of the process is, is finding these samples and then building these structures around them. Has it ever been the case that you've built the structure and then found the sample to bring in? I think sometimes I, it does get blurrier. Obviously, as you say, most of the time it comes from the way around you said of like finding a vocals and building around these samples. But there are moments, I guess, where like I'll make a sketch one day, like it won't become a whole song or whatever, but there'll be something in it in like the breakdown, there'll be a drums and bass part or whatever that I just will stay in the back of my mind. If I'm working on another song months later, I might suddenly be like, oh, do you remember maybe that thing I could put on this or or maybe I could start with something from one of those today so I think it does get blurrier usually everything I want always to be driven by samples because that's the emotional epicenter of any song for me or that, that I do but there are moments like like there was a, a great bit of Brian when I was making the first record and I was saying to him that I was very lost with the process of things and I was second guessing myself too much and I wasn't getting into that play state that like we were talking about and whilst I was explaining this to him, he was kind of listening and kind of like kind of thinking. And he like dra dragged from his iTunes 300 things just like onto my hard drive. And I was like, what was that? And he was like, okay, so these are some random sketches I've made over the last 10 years. And he was like, so from now on, whenever you start a piece of music, you have to begin with one of these that you have no control over, you have to choose it at random and you just have to start, which was a beautiful bit of Brian because like what that does is it like forces you into a, instead of it being like when you sit down in the studio, you're like, instead of sitting there and being like, no, that's not the best chord. Oh, like, no, that's not the best. And you never even get going. You're just there and you just drag something in and you're, it might be one that you don't even like think uh, that excited by initially. And you're, you're just immediately being like, okay, what if I just like, this one bar and loops it and then slowed it down by like 900% and then like your state of mind much more quickly goes into like a, oh what if I did this well like maybe it'd be cool interesting it, it liberates you from that and puts you in a much more exploratory mindset as opposed to just like seeing the person who just goes <laughs> is it done <laughs> I'm curious because you know you you've been so close with the music on this record for so long and now it's going to be you know belong to the world what is right now the most listenable track for you like what can you actually like go back and like 
Yeah, I fucking did that. There should be way more words for proud than there are. Because proud is not what I mean here. Maybe there are and I don't know them. I'm very something about the song I was going to say is the me heavy song off the first album. I'm very like, when I listen back, I'm like, wow, I really can't believe I did that. I'm like kind of surprised at myself, I guess. So I do, I do listen to that sometimes because it's like a helpful diary entry, I guess, a helpful anchor in the sand. I'm so tired of being strong. Speaking of Marker in the Sand, have you had a chance to see Triangle of Sadness yet? No. Someone was telling me about this the other day. Which, 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 which is that again? It's, it's the movie about uh, super rich people on a boat. Why, was this, why did this come up? No, I haven't seen it. Because your song closes out the whole movie. Oh, maybe that's why it came up. Right. Which song? Uh, Maria. Jokes. I, um, no, I, I, that must have been why it came up. I can't remember the context but no that's funny is it is it a good film everyone loves it i have not watched it yet because i have a weird thing about puke scenes and there's like a 10 minute like uh <laughs> intense puke scene but i i hear that it's like the sink of the year like everyone who's seen is like oh my god the way they end that movie with fred again is crazy um so yeah I, i'm i'll be curious to hear what you think um upon seeing it wow i'm looking forward to seeing that no it's mad <laughs> 10 minute puke scene, no way. It's not 10 minutes. That's too much for me. I think it is. I mean, it's it's part of the poster, so uh, Oh my god. One day one day I'll muster up the the strength in my stomach, but not today, Satan. <laughs> Zooming out from that uh, a little bit, something I've been asking people lately, when you're playing music for your friends these days, no audience, just like you and your mates, what is your like back pocket like they don't know this, but like this is gonna fucking rip right now. I'd have to have my USB there, all these like weirdly labeled stuff. It would probably be something that um Hen, my flatmate, has made. So I couldn't play it to him, but to anyone else. He makes so many wicked like edits and like bootleg mashup things that he'll just play in sets. In fact, I came back last night and he was making one from some like barbershop record or something. And he was just making an absolute set closer. So it would probably be one of one of those, which are which is not a very helpful response because it's not giving you a track ID or anything. <laughs> I'm curious to sort of round out this conversation, given that Actual Life Three is sort of the period dot and on you know this chapter and kind of opening up what's next. Have you had a chance to pause and sort of consider what you want the legacy of this project to be or, or how it stands right now? No. And I think really that's probably on purpose because like worrying, I think for, for, for me personally, like about how things will seem in years to come or the legacy of something called that stuff. I think that puts me and I think a lot of humans into a state of mind that is not constructive because really all I'm interested in is this right now, honest to me. And then if it is, I'm like, great. Done. Like I don't, I'm not trying to tick any other box because to me in my mind, as long as that's the case, there's, uh, there's no vacancy for regret because I know that even if in 10 years, I'm like, Oh, I'd make a totally different thing now, whatever. I'll be like, that was what that was then. That was the diary entry for that year or that month. And so it is intrinsically sound to me, even regardless of all the other 
things you can question. That's all I'm interested in trying to do. And so I don't think at all about the like legacy or how it will seem in a few years. I'm just trying to like try and pinpoint what it is now. I'm glad to hear that you've sort of freed yourself of, of the criteria, I guess, of, of marking those moments. I'm curious how the Fred Again project will will sort of evolve in this next chapter where it's not so marked by those dates and times. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate it. Let's see. Thanks, man. Sometimes I want to fit a pain To share you That was Fred Gibson talking to The Fader's Salvatore Mackie. Fred Again's new album, Actual Life 3, is out Friday, October 28th, via Atlantic. The Fader interview is engineered by Tony Giambroni. The executive producer is Alex Robert Ross, and the associate producer is Raphael Helfand. We'd like to thank Lauten Audio for providing our microphones. You can find them online at lautenaudio.com. And we'd like to thank James Ivey for providing our intro music. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you left a five-star rating and review. If you like listening to The Fader, good news. We're now on the new live radio app, Amp. You can download it from the App Store now. And keep an eye on thefader.com for essential music news, interviews, and essays. We'll be back soon with another episode of The Fader Interview. Goodbye until then.